Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. So I mentioned yesterday that we saw the Dow sell off 6.9%, the S&P down 5.9%, the Nasdaq down 5%. John Authors' Bloomberg opinion piece earlier on the president being at least partially responsible. He says this, the chief culprit isn't Powell or fear of a second wave. The best single narrative is that Trump's growing political problems and the prospect of a Democratic majority's ability to enact market-unfriendly policy reached a critical mass. Let's get to somebody now who also shares at least some of this opinion. Barry Bannister is head of institutional equity strategy at Stiefel Nicholas. He's lowering his target on the S&P 500 to 3,100 by December, precisely because of election risk. Barry, great to chat with you this morning. Now you are lowering your target, but is it too early for the market to be positioning this way? No, not really. I mean, a lot can change in five months until the election, but we had a amazing rally off the bottom uh, in March 23rd. I mean, we were up 45% on NASDAQ and S&P 500. If you annualize those 77 days, it was 475% annual gain. Um, I would say yesterday felt like a fever breaking, in this case, a speculative fever. And our view is the market consolidates recent gains, uh, awaiting more clarity on second half growth prospects. So, Barry, give us a, your sense. I mean, the, the last 24 hours in the market have just been extraordinary. Again, as Vani was describing those you know, exceptional declines yesterday in the markets, now we're bouncing back, and I don't see any material news out there. How do you think about the volatility just over the past couple of days? Well, it is a little disturbing. Um, I've been doing this a long time. I remember, for example, just in the last two major tops, uh, we had large swings in the NASDAQ in March of 2000 as it was topping at 5,000 before falling something like 75% in the next two years. I believe we were up and down 400 points day, day on day, back to back, uh, which at the time was more than 5, 6, 7% days. Um, also in the 2007, 8, 9 uh, financial crisis, as we topped out in 07, you would see financial stocks up and down 30 and 40% in a day back to back. So when I see this kind of volatility at the top and the speculative fever like Hertz, which is bankrupt, uh, considering a $1 billion equity offering because of the speculative buying that's going on, or Chesapeake on the weekend of the 6th and 7th of June rising 182% despite being uh, nearly bankrupt, I think it's just too much money chasing uh, too few good ideas. Fed Chair Jay Powell was asked that towards the end of the news conference the other day, asked if the Fed was worried about a bubble or at least, you know, severe frothiness. He didn't really answer the question in great detail. Is the Fed worried about it? Well, the Fed has to be somewhat political. They, you know, they can't say things that are not um, uh, socially correct. But the reality is, uh, and we analyzed it in a report that came out last night, there's a concept in bonds called convexity. Uh, it's abnormally strong bond price changes as you reach lower and lower levels of yield. The same applies to equities. We have what's called a negative real yield, meaning the 10-year yield minus inflation is a negative number. Imagine that's a starting point for a discount rate for earnings. 
uh, that gives you an enormous valuation. So what we have seen through convexity in the equity market with negative real yields is a huge spike in the price-to-earnings ratio in just the last uh, few months. And that's well in front of the growth in earnings. And so I I think it would be uh, wise to step back a minute and just wait for the growth signs in the back half. Uh, we did a lot of damage to the economy with the shutdowns, and we'll see what the damage is uh, as we try to grow in the second half. All right, Barry. So as you know, concerns mount in the marketplace here, are we kind of going back to that strategy where let's get out of some of these cyclical sectors and maybe into more defensive uh, sectors such as utilities and so on? Mm-hmm. Well, growth is its own defense, but then the growth relative to value, uh, which think of that as like high price to book relative to low price to book stocks or technology relative to financials, for example, growth relative to value uh, is at one of only three levels of overbought seen in 100 years of monthly data that we have going back to the uh, early 1920s. So growth is its own defense. Yes, you can grow and you deserve a high multiple for it, but you're paying an awful lot for that relative to these sort of cyclical industrial value names. On the defenses, which you mentioned, like utilities or healthcare or uh, food companies uh, and so forth, we have seen cyclicals vastly outperform these defensive stocks since the top of defensives on March 19th, which was only two days before the market bottomed, uh, two trading days. And so in effect, I do think we're overbought on cyclical and oversold on defensive. And I do look for uh, some dis disappointing news to cause the market to pull back within a range, but not a big one. So we're saying around a 5% trading range of yesterday's close is, is what we'd expect into the summer. Hey, Barry, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate your thoughts and insight. Barry Bannister, uh, he's head of uh, Institutional Equity Strategy at Stiefel, based in Charm City. That's Baltimore, <laughs> Maryland. Uh, Vani, I look at the volatility here, and I'm just not sure. You know, we had that just extraordinary sell-off yesterday. That really felt uh, significant. Um, and, you know, not just a normal sell-off, but something different. Yet, we bounce back today. I'm not sure on what news per se, but it's just interesting to note, if nothing else, the volatility. Definitely a shaking out of positions. It, you heard, Barry, though, there's going to be a trading range of 5%. So we may see many, many more of days like this through the summer. And interestingly, Barry, while he's lowering his target, he's still looking for 3,100 by December, which we should note is above where we are right now on the S&P. Exactly. We're at 3068 on the S&P. We're up 2.2% today on the S&P. This is Bloomberg. So let's get to our next guest now, somebody who knows a lot about what's going on around the country in terms of the virus. Lauren Sauer is Johns Hopkins University Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine. Dr. Sauer, thanks for joining us once again. Always thrilled to get your updates. Talk to us about how reopenings and even the protests may have impacted the spread of COVID. Absolutely. So we are seeing states moving um, towards reopening broadly across the country, um, all the while still seeing hotspots continuing. The hotspots seem to be moving from major cities um, in some circumstances to more rural areas, uh, but we're seeing I think as many as 14 states across the country having their highest seven-day average in new cases, which is concerning since many of those are the same states that are, you know, broadly reopening. The protests will definitely continue to 
to be a factor in driving spread and transmission. Um, although we've heard reports that protesters are working very hard to ensure that they're doing the best they can to social distance in the protest to continue to wear face coverings. Um, but we do know that these events will be drivers of transmission. Is there anything that we've learned about some of these newer cases? Are they any different from the original wave or is it just that same old virus? Um, the virus we've heard is not actually mutating that much from from the recent research. Um, so it is the same virus. I think what we're learning is how to care for these patients better. We're learning a lot more about how the virus acts in the body and then how to manage patients. Um, we also are seeing that the social distancing and masking and other public health interventions are working. So that's really important to driving down that um, spread and, and flattening the curve, which we are still working to do. We have to continue to protect hospitals and health systems in the second wave. Should lockdowns be continuing, Dr. Sauer? I mean, if, if, if it was only a question of public health, would you suggest that that should be the case? I think we need to be very careful when we think about reopening. We don't have a ton of new tools in our toolkit, right? We don't have a vaccine yet. We don't have a lot of new therapeutics that we know work very well. Um, and we do have a very susceptible population still. So a lot of people across the country still have not gotten COVID. So we have to consider the fact that as lockdowns are relaxed, that we will see another increase. Now, it may be that we see in warmer weather less spread. We, we don't know a lot about um, how the seasonality will affect this virus, but given the fact that so many people in our population are, are still susceptible, we have to be really careful with how we consider uh, reducing lockdown. So, Lauren, I think, you know, most Americans are at this point now and maybe many government officials are at the point where we have to weigh, you know, the economic impact of uh, complete lockdowns versus, um, you know, the health risks of reopening here. Is it is it the belief within the medical community that, you know, a reopening can occur, but it just has to be following the protocols of mass, of social distancing, of, you know, tracing, tracking and tracing? Is that probably the preferred way to go? Yeah, I think no one you know, especially us in the health field and, and in the public health field, we, we understand the impact that these lockdowns can create on, on many other aspects of health and public health too, not just the economy. So we understand that, that the lockdowns have to stop. I think the challenge is that we have to make sure that people are willing to reverse course if necessary, if we start to see massive amounts of new spread um, and our health systems get bogged down. And I think people have to take these other activities seriously, social distancing wherever you can, um, not, you know, not leaving your mask at home and running to the store anyway, or um, making sure that you're using those good hygiene practices. So those have to, people have to be really diligent about that if we're going to safely and carefully reopen. Dr. Sarr, I'm not sure if you had a chance to have a look at the Wall Street Journal report that New York's response to the coronavirus actually made the pandemic worse, uh, the study that the Wall Street Journal conducted. Um, would you have any insight into whether that's now changing, whether responses will be different in future to pan pandemics? I haven't seen that um, that Wall Street Journal article yet, but I, I caution against sort of um, armchair quarterbacking the New York response. I mean, I think it was one of the earliest, you know, largest hits on a major city, and um, many people in New York did a ton of work to ensure that we saved the most lives, that that people were protected, and that 
rapidly issued guidance was implemented effectively. I think we're going to learn a lot of lessons from the New York response, and I think people are already making changes based on what we saw working and not working. Um, but I, I, I hesitate to say that, that it made things worse. Mm. So, Lauren, just give us an update on kind of where what you're hearing within the, the medical community, the healthcare community, about kind of where we are with some treatments uh, and maybe even some vaccines. Yeah, there's a lot of work being done in both areas. Um, you may have seen the recent news that the remdesivir drug that has was um, on in multiple clinical trials um, early in the pandemic um, has some really promising uh, data and that it that it may reduce um, morbidity and mortality and may uh, improve hospital stays, which is great. Um, I think that's pre it is preliminary data, and I think we have a lot of lessons to learn about, or sorry, a lot of uh, research to do on um, remdesivir, but it is a promising drug that we now have under emergency use authorization in our toolkit. Um, there's a lot of other drugs being studied in clinical trial. We're looking at convalescent plasma as a possible option, um, and those studies are running broadly across the country and ac across the globe. And people are doing a ton of work on various vaccine options, different platforms, testing vaccines that may be further down in the pipeline, and developing new models for vaccine development and distribution. A ton of work left to do, but uh, some promising options. Briefly, Doctor, antibody testing, is it to the point yet where we can trust results? I think there's still too many questions with antibody testing, um, particularly in what it means for uh, lasting immunity. And so what, what do you do with that information that you get from an antibody test? Um, I think it's, it's very early in what antibody tests can and can't be used for and how um, reliable and valid the results are. And there's so many different types of antibody tests out there. Um, it's really hard to message what that information means for the person receiving it. Lauren Sauer, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. As always, Lauren Sauer, Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins University. We are so fortunate to have the smart folks at Johns Hopkins and others join us to give us the medical perspective. Uh, the Bloomberg School of Public Health is supported by Michael Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. It is time for Bloomberg Opinion. We are joined by Bloomberg Opinion columnist Jim Bianco. He is the president and founder of Bianco Research. Jim, thanks so much for joining us here. I want to get a sense, you know, you've been a, a, a very cautious outlook on the economy and on the markets here. I want to get a sense of kind of what your takeaway is from you know, the equity market trading we've seen over the past couple of days yesterday seemed to really signal uh, an awakening by the market of the risk to that are really out there in terms of the economy. Yet today we kind of bounced back. What do, you, what do you make of what's going on in the market? You know, yeah, I have been a bit cautious on the economy, and I think that that has been more correct than not, and that has translated into a cautiousness in the, in the equity markets, and that has not been more correct than not until yesterday. Uh, I do think it, what you've seen happen in the stock market in bigger picture has been a Federal Reserve and a federal government, let's not leave them out of the equation, the Treasury Department, promising bailouts, promising support, basically telling everybody that we need the markets to go back up. Chairman Powell underscored that uh, at his press conference earlier this week when he refused to even answer Mike McKee's question about the stock market being overvalued, suggesting that they don't care. They're more interested in getting markets up in order to give confidence and financing to keep the economy going. 
And this led to a big speculative rush in the markets, which I think reversed yesterday. Down 6% in a day doesn't happen because you had, you had bad news about a second wave. It also happens because you had a lot of speculative fever in the market that rushed out yesterday as well, too. But Jim, if markets cared that much about trying to tell the Fed something, trying to give the Fed a message, would they really be back up 2% already today? Unless, of course, you know, we're thinking of markets as a monolith with that question, and they are not a monolith right now. There is a certain uh, aspect of the market that is, and that is that small retail trader that has really rushed into the market in the last uh, couple of months, maybe even in the last year or so. Yes, they matter. They're big in, in total, even though their trades individually are small. And prices are set at the margin, and they are the player at the margin. So they are in the market. So I wouldn't necessarily look at the market's day-to-day machinations, even when it's volatile like this, and suggest that there's a big economic meaning to it. Mm. Jim, you know, we've seen, as you have uh, noted, you know, the Fed kind of being early, being aggressive, uh, and kind of, in quote-unquote, backstopping this market. And we've actually also seen some decent federal stimulus, that $3 trillion stimulus bill was just uh, historic. Does the market need to have another federal stimulus bill um, coming out of Washington? I think it's going to need to see either signs that the economy is seriously rebounding uh, or it's going to need more stimulus. In other words, if if it gets that rebound, it won't need it. Now, let me be clear on what I'm talking about. I'll give you a statistic, one statistic. At the bottom of the 2008 recovery, output in the economy was 96% of what it was at the 2007 high. We only dropped 4%. That was enough to have the stock market and produce a 10% unemployment rate. This time around, we're thinking that the economy dropped at its worst point, maybe 15 to 20%. It's getting better. But if it doesn't get back to 96, 98% of output, uh, it will be a very bad recession. Mayor de Blasio said that uh, his ridership on the New York City subway was up uh, 25% in the last week. It's still 80% off of its high. It's got to get back to 95% in order for there to be some kind of semblance of normal returning. If you get that, you don't need the stimulus. Short of that, I do think that the market and the economy will be disappointed if there is a, a not any more stimulus coming. Now, Jim, Treasury yields sort of front-ran this movement in stocks, right? Was this also a response to the Fed chair? Uh, yeah, I think Treasury yields have two things going for them, or, or bigger picture going for them, and that is there's going to be a tremendous amount of issuance, $3 trillion just this quarter, which we're working through right now. What has happened over the last 8 to 10 weeks is the Fed had been buying more than had been being issued. So the bond market was in an unusual situation that it was actually shrinking in size when you remove the Fed out of the equation, and that had been holding prices very steady. It was in the last two weeks or so that issuance started to overtake what the Fed was doing and yield started up. But Wednesday, Chairman Powell said that their bond buying has probably found a floor at around $120 billion a month. 
So it's not going to get any lower than that. A trillion dollars a year is what that works out to. I know it's a hard number to understand, a trillion a year. <laughs> and that, I think, gave the market some support, which is why you saw the rally in bonds right after that. Oh, we just found for sure we've got at least a trillion-dollar buyer of bonds as we move forward, helping to alleviate some of that crush of supply that's coming. And that's what I think was the positive news for the bond market this week. Jim, it is always fascinating to speak with you. Thank you for that. Jim Bianco is president and founder of Bianco Research. Of course, also Bloomberg opinion columnist. And Paul, it is fascinating because the worst of the corporate spreads have seen a a retracement this week of almost 50%. So there have been big moves underneath the hood of the bond markets. Also, what Jim was talking about there, the retail trader, we have a fascinating story on the Bloomberg today about the Barstool Sports founder yep. who's... <laughs> <laughs> I follow really, him on Twitter. It's kind of fun. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just a strange story. Apparently, uh, you know, he's, he's bringing huge numbers of people into the retail day trading uh, side of things, but he's now decided that he's going to be a buy and hold kind of guy. So we'll, we'll see what Dave <laughs> Portnoy does next. Well, one of the most key fallouts uh, from an economic perspective of this pandemic has been the job losses, just extraordinary job losses across the U.S. and across the globe. One of the questions for investors and economists is how much of those or how many of those jobs are uh, temporarily lost and they'll come back as the pandemic wanes and how much of those are structurally lost that i.e. they will not come back to answer that question we welcome bjorn van roya he's a senior global economist for bloomberg economics he's based in frankfurt germany bjorn thanks so much for joining us here i know you guys have done some work here on kind of taking a look at the unemployment and you know kind of the structure of that unemployment how much is temporary and how much is permanent what did you guys find yeah many thanks for having me paul um yes indeed we have looked at uh at unemployment increases in advanced economies and as, a, as an example we took the united states and uh, we have found basically that uh, the probability uh, of about 30 percent of workers who have lost their jobs is very high that they will uh, remain in unemployment while 70% of the workers that have lost their jobs are likely to get uh, in back to employment very soon. What would that result in in terms of the overall numbers? It wouldn't be obviously a 30% unemployment rate, would it? No, no, it's the absolute numbers of the people who have lost their jobs. So it's, we're talking in the, the COVID-19 crisis in the United States, for example, about 19 million people. So a third of it, basically, uh, which would translate uh, into to, to six million people, where the probability in getting back to employment would be elevated to remain in unemployment. So, Bjorn, when are we going to get a sense of kind of how this plays out? I know you guys are, again, kind of forecasting here, but is this something that we're just going to have to wait for the numbers to come in and to see whether you know, those furloughed workers are brought back or you know, some of those service sector employees are brought back? I mean, is it just something that we have to wait and look at the data? We're not hearing much from the companies, are we? Yeah, so how we think about it, we can decompose basically uh, the, the job losses that we have observed into three factors. The first factor, basically, we uh, are demand and supply factors. When you think about uh, shops just closing and people are not able to buy in these shops, the workers will lose their jobs. At the moment when the shops open again and, uh, and people uh, gain more confidence and uncertainty is reduced uh, of their future income, for example, people will start buying again and these jobs are likely to come back uh, very quickly. 
The second one uh, is uh, what we think about is outside option of unemployed workers. You, you think about the CARES Act, which is quite, uh, quite generous in the United States. Uh, so a lot of workers do not really have uh, the, the, the search effort for employment at the moment. W- once this is being reduced, the search efforts uh, to get a new job uh, are, are also increasing. So this is another, another thing where, where we think that employment can resume very quickly. The problem is the, the, the third uh, source of unemployment, uh, which is a, we call a reallocation of workers and firms. So when you think about now uh, the behavior of, of people not going to restaurants anymore, um, uh, ordering uh, via e-commerce, we have seen a lot of job creation act- actually in, in these, uh, these companies. Amazon has hired a lot of workers uh, because they face higher demand. At the same time, the, the mortar and bricks retailers have, have lost substantially uh, uh, their job there. So uh, if this will, uh, will persist, uh, it's very difficult for, for people who, who, who lost their job due to this reallocation shock to get back into employment because they simply lack the skills uh, to, get a, to, to get a new employment. So this is how we think about it. If 30% is due to this reallocation shock, it will be a painful re- restructuring of the economy, and it's very likely that this will persist towards the, the second half of the year. Beyond those 6 million people that you say won't go immediately back to work, which is a phenomenal number of people, what about wages? Do they hold up at a time when companies and small businesses in particular are under a little bit of pressure? Yeah, that's a very good question, uh, how how wages will evolve. On the, on the one hand, you have the wage pressure going uh, going down because of the increased pool in unemployed people. This naturally gives downward pressure on wages. On the other hand, you have new hires in um, more productive industries. So this is also due to the reallocation shock I just mentioned. So in Amazon, basically, uh, the wages are usually higher than in the in the unproductive sectors that now recently are, are being exposed. So the overall, if you look at hourly wages, for example, on the employed workforce at the moment, they have significantly increased in, in April in the United States uh, because simply productivity and these new, new, uh, uh, new jobs created are, are higher. So in the short term, I would say um, that the average wages are increasing. In the medium term, it remains to be seen what we see in the numbers, which, which factor basically is dominating and how quickly people can go back to work. Bjorn, what's this mean for policymakers uh, as we come out of the other side of the pandemic? What do you guys expect to see? Yeah, it's a very ch- challenging situation for policy, economic policy, both for monetary uh, as, well, as well as fiscal policy. So uh, in, in the first uh, hit uh, of the shock uh, on, uh, to, to the shutdown, to the lockdown measures, um, the, uh, monetary policy has provided a lot of liquidity, which was the right thing to do uh, to, to try to keep the economy uh, above water, uh, as well as fiscal stimulus. We have seen a, a, lot of, um, a lot of very large fiscal spending programs. Uh, and, and this is very, very appropriate to, uh, to fill the gap of the shortfall from the demand and the supply shock, uh, so the first uh, type of shock that we have seen. For the reallocation shock, um, you want to have a policy mix um, that says, okay, uh, we have to keep the economy above the water, but in the same time, we have, don't have to provide a structural change when it's happening in the economy. So you don't want to keep firms alive that have a business model, which is, uh, uh, pre, pre-pandemic uh, style. So 
So there, there's a mix of a balance uh, that, that economic policy has to address uh, going forward to, uh, to strike a balance between, okay, we, ha- we will have to see some bankruptcies and uh, a new structure of the economy, while at the same time not losing too many jobs and, uh, and, and have high um, uh, structural unemployment. All right. Well, we will be watching the data very, very closely. And luckily, we get weekly initial jobless claims as well as obviously the monthly payrolls report. And we waiting on each with bated breath, as will you, Bjorn van Roya, senior global economist at Bloomberg Economics. He is based in Frankfurt. And of course, problems with employment in Europe as well post pandemic. And indeed, we don't even know if we're post pandemic or when we will be post pandemic. So all of those questions yet to be answered. That said, we can say that There was a little bit of good news in the initial jobless claims in the sense that continuing claims came down just ever so gradually, Paul. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, I think the... uh for the 10th week in a row, we had a lower jobless claims number, still a million and a half is a million and a half too many, but again, kind of this, you know, slowing growth in the jobless claims, and that's kind of the silver lining. Yeah, and obviously, you know, at a time when worker safety is important, we do need to keep an eye on wages too, because there shouldn't be a trade-off one for the other indeed. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.